ever been around difficult people? I know it's kind of a silly question because I'm sure that, that we've all experienced a difficult person in our lives. And I, last year was, was probably a pretty tough year for me. I work for, for an aerospace company, and it gets pretty crazy. We have a lot of deadlines, uh, as some people know. Uh, Mr. Gene knows this. But there's a lot, so much going on in, in an aerospace company. We have a lot of contracts that, that are, are due to be fulfilled soon. It just seems like the schedule is just unfair. And last year, I worked with a, uh, a program manager for, for one of the programs that are, that's in California. And, and you, you want to talk about a difficult person. This person was super difficult. Very mean. It seemed like he was very unprofessional. Whenever we were on teleconferences, he'd be swearing on the teleconference at people. And it's, he made people feel that, like they were inadequate in front of other people, even though we knew what we were doing, he made us feel like we didn't know what we were doing, right? It seemed like every meeting, he had to throw someone under the bus, right? He, he, it just seemed like it was a given that someone was going to get trampled on, right? And a lot of times, it felt like I was the one who was being trampled on daily uh, by this person, right? I was the leader of one of the teams there, and so naturally, uh, I get the brunt of his wrath, right? And so, when, when we f- work with difficult people like, like this person, it just seemed like, like he was just going to blow me into smithereens. I feel like every meeting, before every meeting I had with them, I felt a lot of anxiety. And so last year, I had, had, had to ask for a lot of prayer because it was just difficult. I didn't really want to go to work anymore because I knew that somehow, some way, this dude was going to blow me up. Right? And so I, I look back on this now, and you think about this person and, and the way that he used his authority, right? He, he used a, his authority for the benefit of himself and not necessarily for the benefit of the people. Right? He focused on himself. And if anything went bad, it was someone else's problem, right? It wasn't his problem. And I look back at this, and I think, you know, I, I knew I wasn't in the wrong. I did the best I could. I knew my job well. But this is really a sign of an immature leader. So when I, when I ask you this, like, how do you measure maturity? I know that's kind of a general question, but let, let, let's boil it down a little bit. Let, let's make it small. Let's go, how do you measure maturity in the form of leadership? Let's make it even tighter, and let me ask you this question. How do you measure spiritual maturity? I'm going to answer that question with another question. How do you handle power, authority, and influence when you have that? Seems like when you, know, when you have the title that gives you power, authority, and influence, how do you wield it, especially towards other people? Imagine having the ability to be able to get whatever you want, ask for whatever you want, and get it now, right? I feel like sometimes in the world that we live in now, we want things now, right? We can't wait for it. And so we demand things now, and we don't really care how we, get, how we get it, right? And so we don't necessarily think about who is involved in giving this to me now, right? We don't think about those people. You know, we trample other people. We don't even know it because we want things now. Last week, Pastor Jew talked about King Saul, and he was chosen by God to be the king of Israel, and he was anointed by the prophet Samuel, But he began, Saul began to lose his direction because he didn't really follow God anymore. He always jumped ahead of God. He was impulsive. 
He tended to overstep his bounds. He, he lost his perspective. It seemed like in, instead of wanting God's will, he wanted his own will, right? So he began to mirror the world. He focused on what he wanted, and the consequence was that God rejected him for his disobedience. Now, he had the, make, he had the makings of a great leader, a great king. He had the looks, he had the stature, he had the courage and the drive, but he fell short in a very important way that we're going to talk about here soon. So if you would, please pull out your Bibles. Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible today, you can go to the lobby and we can hand you one there. Also, if you are online and you need a Bible or if you need or you know someone who needs a Bible, please let us know. Send us a message online uh, through email and we'll mail you a Bible. And then maybe for some of you who have your phones, you can go to this Bible app called YouVersion. You can download that app on your phone and, uh, and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13. I heard that if you have a, an Android phone, it may not work so well because Androids don't believe in Jesus. So you might have some problems there. All right, so let me just set this up. So 1 Samuel chapter 13. Right? Saul was fighting against the Philistines, and he was doing a pretty good job. He had about 3,000 men, and, and they were winning some battles. But then the Philistines... They started to uh, get some backup, right, some reinforcements. And so they had about 3,000 chariots. They had 6,000 horsemen and a bunch of other people that were fighting for them, right? And so you could do the math. Israel now was outnumbered at least three times, right? So Samuel, at this time, was probably freaking out. Like, oh, my gosh, you know, we are super outnumbered here. But, uh, but Samuel said, hey, you know, I'm going to meet you guys in, in seven days' time, and then we're going to sacrifice to God and make some peace offerings. Because usually when they do that, it seems like God goes ahead, right? And then they, they have, they're, they're victorious in their battle, right? And so Saul was fearful that the Philistines were going to get him because they're, like, coming in. There's all these guys that are coming after him, and they're closing in. And then Saul's men even started to abandon him because they were freaking out too. Like, man, we are outnumbered here. And so Saul could not wait any longer so he made the sacrifice himself without waiting for samuel to go do it and samuel's a prophet right so normally when you make the sacrifice or peace offering nothing that's a good thing right but the thing is that you want your prophet to go and do that because they can't do it the right way right but saul was feeling the pressure of his enemies and they took matters into his own hands right here's his impulsiveness coming again and he's making this this decision without samuel being there Right? It just almost seems like, like Saul forgot that God was on his side. Right? So let's, let's look in, in 1 Samuel chapter 13, beginning in verse 13. It says this. <clears throat> and so Samuel finally made it, and he says this to Saul. You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be the prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Pretty interesting here that, that the word command or form of command has been used four times in, in these two verses. Right? It seems pretty important. Right, that we should probably listen to God's commands. But Saul was a serial disobedient person. Right? It just seemed like whatever God commanded him to go do, he would just disobey. And that was kind of his thing. And when you look at, at where he is, that, that he 
was a king that was anointed by God, yet he still didn't trust God. He took, that things, took the matters in his own hands, and, and God was pretty much done with him. You know, all these times, all these chances I've given you to listen to my commands, to be obedient to me, and now this is where he's fallen short, right? Where Saul has not only sought after God's own heart anymore, he's only sought after the things that he wanted. So God wanted a man after his own heart, and he finds that man in David. Okay, so let's look back. So Saul was, was anointed by God. Well, actually, Samuel anointed, uh, Samuel anointed Saul to be uh, the, the king of Israel by God's command. Right? And so he ruled over Israel for about 42 years. And, and when you look at all the, the mistakes that, that Saul has made, Samuel was pretty bummed out about it. Right? Here, here's a prophet who, who, who anointed Saul to become king. And so he, when we look at, at, at Samuel, he's really kind of the, the spiritual advisor. Right? And so he had all this hope that Saul would do the right thing. But yet he kept on messing up and messing up over and over and over again. And so he was pretty bummed out about it. Like, oh, man, you know, here's a guy that, that God asked me to anoint, and he's just not doing a good job. So he's bummed out. But God said, hey, hey, you know, don't fret none, all right? Let's just get up. Don't bump out about this guy anymore because I got someone else for you, right? So he goes and tells Samuel, hey, go over to Bethlehem. Meet up with this guy, Jesse, and throw this party, right? At this party, make sure that Jesse invites his whole family there to attend, right? And so he goes over to Bethlehem, invites Jesse. The whole family's there. And then right away, Samuel notices Jesse's oldest son, Eliab. He goes, oh, man, this guy's tall. He's handsome. He's got the stature. Surely this is who God's going to pick for the king of Israel, right? And, you know, you can imagine... When you think about stature and, and handsomeness, you know, it's probably like an NFL quarterback, right? Sometimes, you know, those guys, they're, you know, they're tall, dark. You know, Jimmy Garoppolo, I don't know if you know who Jimmy Garoppolo is, but he's, uh, he's the quarterback for the 49ers for now. And, and, you know, I'm a dude, but I know when, when a guy is handsome, right? So Jimmy Garoppolo is a pretty good-looking guy, right? So I imagine that Ellie, I probably looked like him. It's funny, I can see some of the laser Googling Jimmy Garoppolo now. <laughs> Trust me, he's a good-looking dude. All right, so, so what happens is, is that, uh, that Samuel is focused on Eliab because he seems to fit what a king of Israel should look like. Right? And so we look at 1 Samuel 16, but the Lord says this to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So for you ladies out there, you know, I know, you single ladies, if you see some really good-looking dude, you know, and you want to date him, you know, it, it's really about his heart, right? Okay, so, so sometimes, you know, the, the guy might look really awesome, handsome, great-looking, everything, right? Perfect guy. But you got to focus on the heart because just because he's good-looking doesn't mean he's a great guy, right? And for us guys, well, there's really no hope for us, right, because we're so focused on appearances. <laughs> so Samuel then asked Jesse, hey, are all your kids here? And Jesse goes, oh, man, you know, I'm sorry. I do have the youngest who's out tending sheep. And so Samuel said, hey, well, can you bring him over? Right, so David comes on in. He arrives, and God tells Samuel, ooh, ooh 
That's, that's the one. All right? I want you to anoint him as king of Israel. Right? And so in verse 13 it says, And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. When God chose David, he was just a boy. Right? But God had a plan for him. He had a special purpose for him. He was chosen for something special. And, and it took quite some time for, for David to actually become the king of Israel. And, and you hear his story, you read about his story, and he's defeated the Goliath. You know, we are all pretty familiar about that story. But one thing that, 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 that David had to do during this time as he was growing up was he actually was running away from Saul. Saul was, was jealous of him. Now that David has been chosen by God to become the next uh, king of Israel over Saul, Saul just hated him. Right? And you read some of the, the scripture about, about David and the people even sang this song. They said, Saul has struck down thousands and David his ten thousands. I mean, ouch. Right? You're the king of Israel and your people like this kid a lot better than you. That had to hurt. But David had to be on the run. He was living in the wilderness for eight years, pretty much, running away from Saul, Saul trying to kill him. And you think that, that being chosen by God, you'd have it a lot easier than that. Right? But David did not. Right? David trusted God, and he knew there was a much bigger story, a story that's bigger than him. And so when we get into the, the scripture here, the first thing that we see is that there is a bigger story that's much bigger than ourselves. There's a bigger story that's much bigger than ourselves. That we have to realize and remember that this is not about me, right? This is God's will, God's way, and God's time. You read back in David's story here, he's been on the run for a long time, and, and Saul's just been after him. David's living out in the wilderness, Saul's looking everywhere which way to go kill David. And David actually, when you read back, had had a couple opportunities to kill Saul and say, you know what, I'm just going to end this, right? I don't want to be on a run anymore, right? I'm just going to go kill this guy and just be done with it, and then I can go become king of Israel, right? So he had a couple opportunities. And the first opportunity, Saul was out looking for David to kill him, and he had about 3,000 of his men with him, right? And so he made it to a place called the Wild Goat's Rock. And there was a cave there. And so he went into the cave to relieve himself. So I don't know if it was a one or a two, uh, but I'm sure if you're going into a cave, it's probably a two. All right? And uh, so he goes into this cave, you know, brings his newspaper, magazine, whatever. Right? And so David and his men were actually in this cave. It was really interesting to, to read. And so when you look back also in, in Scripture, these men that David has with him, uh, they're, they're made of guys that, that were were probably in debt. They were, were people who uh, were in trouble, probably with the law, uh, and some were, were unhappy, and maybe even some were just disenfranchised with Saul's kingdom. So these are the men that David had with them, right? There's, there's about four to 600 of these men. And so they were hiding in the cave, and so Saul walks in to go do his thing, 
And these guys being in the cave, you know, their, their eyes are already adjusted, right? They can see Saul pretty good, and Saul just walks in just from the sun, being outside, didn't see anything, right? So he's doing his thing. So it was a perfect opportunity to kill Saul because he couldn't see anything, and two, he was also in a vulnerable position, right, to say the least. And, and so this is where we go into 1 Samuel chapter 24, and in verse 4, this is what David's men said to him. Here is a day of which the Lord said to you, Behold! I'll give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. I mean, David had the chance of a lifetime to end Saul right there, right? His men were telling him, take the shot! Take the shot! It's almost like Top Gun, right? When, when Goose dies, or after Goose di- Well, is that a spoiler? Right? It's been 36 years, so if you haven't seen the movie, you know, too bad, right? So, so after Goose dies, Maverick goes out and is training. He's flying around, and he's got a new backseater. And, uh, and, and his, his backseater's telling him, you've got to take the shot. It's perfect. It's a perfect shot. Take the shot now. And Maverick says, no, 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 no. It doesn't look good, right? And his, <laughs> his backseater says, what do you mean it doesn't look good? It doesn't get any better than that. Right, this is how it was for David. He had this perfect opportunity to end Saul there. But David chose not to kill Saul. Instead, David felt guilty that he just cut off a piece of his robe, right? And then he told his men, God forbid that I do a bad thing to the Lord's anointed. Then he told them not to lay a hand on Saul. And so, so when Saul was done doing his thing, he goes out and David follows him and says, Oh, hey, I had you, man. I had you, right? And, and so he is just saying, I had you, but I let you go. It was important to look at First Samuel in, in verse 12. It says, may the Lord judge between you and me. This is, this is David telling Saul, I had a chance to kill you, but may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. Saying, I had a chance to kill you, but it's only in God's time. It's God's way. So the second opportunity, again, Saul was out hunting for David. This time he was at a place called Hakela. It's east of Jeshimon. Can't tell you where that is. I probably should have got a map and showed you where that is. But Saul made a camp over there. And then David, as usual, is out in the wilderness with his, with his men. Right? So Saul makes this camp. He goes to bed, and then while it's nighttime, David goes and talks to him and says, hey, which one of you want to go with me and, uh, and go to Saul's camp right now? It'll be fun. Let's go do it, right? So there's a guy, one of his men, David's men, Abishai, says, hey, hey, I'll volunteer. And this is really cool. So Abishai was one of David's mighty men. And if you've heard of David's mighty men, you could read that in 2 Samuel chapter 23 and who these people are. Right, so the, the mighty men of David were comprised of the three, which is made of three of his guys, and then the 30, right? And so the 30 were like the special forces. These guys were awesome, really good at battle, things like that, strategy and all that kind of stuff. And so the three, the three were like the, the best of the best, right? These guys were, 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 were men who, who did some pretty pretty incredible feats uh, during or being on the field of battle, right? They didn't 
care lines in half like Samson probably did, but, but, but pretty close. Right? So Abishai, he wasn't one of the three, but he was pretty famous as if he was one of the three. And there's legend has it that he's killed 300 men with a spear alone in one battle. It's really not legend because it's in the Bible, so it's true. Right? So, so he kills 300 men with a spear. So this guy's, this guy's a stud. Right? This guy's a dude. And, and so because of that, he's also the commander of the 30. So this is who Abishai is. And so what they do is they sneak into the camp. Everyone's asleep. And they find Saul in his tent. And Saul's sleeping. And he's got a spear by his head. And this is a lot of what the warriors did back then is to make sure that their weapon's close to them while they're sleeping in case someone ever sneaks in. And right next to, to Saul was the commander of his army, and his name was Abner. And they're sleeping in here. Uh, and so Abishai and David walk into their tent, all quiet-like and stuff, and then they start having this conversation while they're in this tent, right? And so this is what they say. Abishai says to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice. Abishai knows that David has this thing about killing God's anointed, right? So he's telling him, hey, I know you got a problem with that, so let me go and do it, right? Then you don't have to feel any guilt or anything like that, right? But David tells him this, do not destroy him for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David says, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. Again, David is trusting that God has this in his hands, and he'll take care of him in due time, in God's time. So Lord forbid that I put, should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head in the jar of water and let us go. So we already see a difference between the leadership of David and Saul. Saul, he wouldn't even think for a second, right? He would just go and just kill his enemy, even an enemy that's anointed by God. And David would not do that. And in David's obedience to God, he knows that it'll be God's will, God's way, and God's time that Saul will be taken. Right? And so David and Abishai, Abishai leave the camp and as they were far away off, they started yelling. David goes, hey, hey, Abner, Saul, come on out here. And, and David actually calls out Abner. He says, hey, you didn't protect your king. You know, and Amber, Abner is probably just waking up like, what is this kid talking about that I didn't protect my king, right? So David goes, hey, where is Saul's spear and the jar of water? And Abner's thinking, well, I don't know. So David shows him. And at this time, Abner's thinking, oh, snap. These are things that, that were by us when we were asleep. And these guys snuck in and took him, knowing that David had a chance to kill Saul, but he didn't. So David refuses to go against God's will in order to get the promise of God now. He could have killed Saul and become king, but he didn't do that. He wanted to obey God and followed God's will. So what's great about the grace of David that he's shown uh, to Saul uh, due to his obedience to God was that he really made an example to his men, right? Twice now he had the chance to take out Saul, but he didn't do that. He made clear that we are not to hurt or harm or lay hands on God's anointed, that God will take care of it in his own time. And that was a great lesson that David taught his men, real time, 
real life. So we go into the next point here that, that, that we see is that don't create God's plan for yourself when he already has a plan for you. So as we jump ahead, Saul and his son, Jonathan, one of David's friends, were, were killed uh, by the Philistines. So actually, let's, let's get into some, some details here. So Saul's three, three of his sons were killed. Jonathan was one of them. And so as, in this, as they were in this battle with the Philistines, the Philistines were closing in, and Saul was injured by arrows. And so he's pretty much going to die. And so he t- asked his armor bearer, hey, I want you to kill me because I don't want these Philistines to come and capture me and do whatever they please. So please kill me now. Right? And his armor bearer is afraid. He says, no, I'm not going to go and do that. And so what Saul does, he just falls on his own sword and pretty much kills himself. And his armor bearer did the same thing. Right? So this is an important detail to, to remember as we go forward here. Right? So at this time, Saul's dead. So you think that maybe... David is going to become the king of Israel, right? But that doesn't happen. Right? What happens is that Saul still has one more kid. His name is Ishbosheth, and he claims the throne as an heir of it, right? He wasn't anointed by God, but he's still king, and he rules for about seven years. So instead, David becomes the king of Judah, which is one of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? So it's really crazy. So you, here's this opportunity that, that, that David had to become king, but then there's this other son of Saul that takes over for him. And now we read forward, and there's these two brothers. Their names are Rechab and Baana. And, and they find Ishbosheth's home, they enter it. He's taking a nap, and then they kill him, cut off his head, and they bring his head over to David. Right? So they think they're doing this great deed. Like, David, I know you've been waiting to be king. There's this guy that was in your way, so we took care of it, and here's his head. Right? You think that's probably a good thing, right? But it doesn't turn out so well for them. So let's go in 2 Samuel. Let's flip a few pages, go to chapter 4, and beginning verse 9, it says, But David answered Rechab and Baana, his brother, the sons of Ramon, the beer, beerothite. I think he's a, a master brewer. And so as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for this news. So some detail about this guy. This guy was an Amalekite, right? So I just told you that, that, that Saul pretty much killed himself, right, because he didn't want the Philistines to come and get him. But this Amalekite guy was kind of hanging around, saw that Saul was dead. So what he does, he grabs his, his, his crown and some jewels. He thinks, okay, I'm going to go over to David. I would tell him, hey, you know, Saul's dead. You can become king now, right? But David asked him some details about, well, how did Saul die? Oh, you know, he was, uh, he was really injured, mortally wounded, and he asked me to kill him, so I did it. And you know David about killing God's anointed, right? That doesn't really work out well for him. So this guy, thinking he's, you know, he's doing a great thing, a good deed for David, lies and says, I killed Saul. And this is what happens, right? David gets him at Ziglag and kills the guy. So how much more, is David talking to Rechab and Bana? how much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from this earth? Pretty sure the two brothers are quaking in their boots now, thinking, oh boy, this is not going to end up well for us. And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. 
That's pretty brutal. Right? Here are these two guys that, that, that thought they were doing a good deed for David, but he has them killed anyway. David said, you guys went into an innocent man's home and killed him. You know, th- this guy, Ishbosheth wasn't out hunting David, right? Not, not like his father Saul was doing. Just some guy sleeping in his, he's the king, sleeping in his own house, and two guys come in and kill him. So what's the moral of this story? Don't go make up news you think is good because you're going to end up dead, right? <laughs> well, probably back in the day. I, this reminds me of a time when, when I was kind of in this uh, middle school age type uh, uh, school, um, and I was grounded for, for doing something stupid and uh, doing some pretty ridiculous things, and I'm sure I'm the only one who's ever done that. So my mom grounded me for something, and I don't really, again, remember what it was, but I'm sure I deserved it. And uh, I think it was actually, <laughs> so she grounded me right after I think I was grounded for something else. And so uh, I tried to gain her favor to be released from this imprisonment, right, by, by cleaning the house. So I, what I did was I cleaned my bathroom, I vacuumed the house, and I thought, okay, if I, do go, if I go and do this, maybe she'll let me off the hook, right? And I mean, I slaved all day, right, to go and do this, probably all about, about an hour or so. And uh, so when I was done, I tried to get her to a notice. Say, Mom, you know, look at all this great stuff I did in the house, right? And so maybe she would uh, look on me and say, oh, you know, you've done a good job, son. You know, let me uh, let you go do whatever you want to go do now, right? But she did finally notice, and she said, thank you. Uh, nice try. And so, uh, so and then she smiled and continued to go do whatever she was doing, right? And so I just totally felt uh, punked by my own mom, you're like, wow, you know, I did all this stuff, and I didn't even gain anything uh, out of it, right? But my mom, bless her heart, she, you know, this is just, uh, I'm so thankful for her because she didn't, she didn't really compromise, right? She, she stood her ground. She, she stood on what she believed was right for me, right? If, if she would have let me off the hook, then I probably wouldn't have learned any lesson from whatever I did back then. Right? She didn't make that compromise at all. She's not, she's gonna, she stuck with it and made sure, hey, you're, gonna sit, you're going to uh, sit out your full term of your groundment and, uh, and be out for two weeks or whatever long it was, right? And so David respected and honored what God put in place. And he put in place at that time uh, was another person who was king of Israel. So David wasn't going to go around that, right? The key principle that David believed was, was that it was going to be God's plan, God's way, and God's time. David wasn't going to compromise and make that compromise to go do it. He believed and trusted God's promise for him. God said he'll become king of Israel, and David trusted this promise and wasn't going to go and rush it. He wasn't going to try and make a deal with God to go and, and make this happen sooner. Not like Saul, who continued to bypass God's plan. So David refused to violate what God had put into place. And you read in Proverbs chapter 3, and this is a, a, a verse that maybe we've quoted so many times or, or heard a lot of times in our lives, and it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. 
I've read this passage so many times in my life. A lot of times I've always relied on it whenever there were tough things going on in my life. Like, I don't know what's going on. Things are crappy right now, but I know God has it in his hands. The the thing is, there's that verse 7 part (laughs) that says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It seems that it's easy for us to go and look at, at things that are happening in our lives that may not be turning out the way that we have thought. And we can be impulsive in the way that we make our decisions, right? We, we look at, at things and being wise in our own eyes and we believe that we know better than God. So what we do is we just go do what we think we is, no be, is, is best for us. But this verse is telling us that, that God has a plan for our life. This, we just need to trust him. Right? Again, it's God's will, God's way, God's time. And so when I ask you, is there something in your life that you're trying to make a decision about? Is God, is Jesus a part of that decision that you're making? Have you asked him for wisdom? Or are you relying on your own strength to go do what you think is right for yourself? And it might be opposite of what God is asking you to go do. Does it align with the promise that God has for you. It's easy to try, try to, and bypass God when, when things aren't going our way because we, we tend to create in our minds the way it should be. Right? We, we plan some things and it's perfect. It's perfect in our heads. But a lot of times the, the things just don't work out that way. So what we want to go do then is, is we, we lean on our own understanding, okay, if it's not working out this way, then here's the answer. So we need to be more like David and saying, I'm not going to go do this on my own. I'm going to trust God's timing. God's got a way. It's going to be the best way for me. So no matter how long it's going to take, eight years maybe, like David, I'm going to trust him and not violate what God has in place now. So after the death of Ishbosheth, David finally becomes the king of Israel, right? So all 12 tribes he's the king of. And so the tribes come to David, and they say some pretty encouraging things to him as they confidently accept his authority over them. So they reminisce that during Saul's rule, you know, things weren't always the best, but it was always you, David, that rescued us. And now you're going to become the prince of Israel. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 5, it says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Ebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who let out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel. You shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Ebron. This is important. And if you have your Bibles right now, you can underline this. It says, and King David made a covenant with them. That's super important at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. This is a huge deal. It's, it's taken about 15 years uh, for God's promise to David to become reality, that he would become king, and it finally happened. Right? So it's been a long time coming, but I'm sure throughout this, this, these years, uh, through the suffering that David's gone through, all the, the, the junk that, that Saul put him through, and he's, he's learned a lot of things, and he's applied that in the way he's going to rule. Right? He became the most 
powerful person in the room. And then he shows his greatness here by making a covenant with the people of Israel. And we've talked about the covenant a few times here, but here's a refresher. A covenant is a relationship between two partners who make binding promises to each other and work together to reach a common goal. Right away, David made it clear that he was a king under authority and being under authority of the real king in heaven. He was already submitting himself over the people that he was going to rule over. Right? And he did it in a humble way. And this wasn't going to be some authoritarian rule or a dictatorship. Right? He was in it with the people of Israel under the rule of God. And David basically says he's going to be a king who is also accountable, right? Help me help you. I'm in it with you. I mean, who wouldn't want to follow or have a leader like this person? So the last thing that we, that we, we read here is that leadership is a stewardship. Leadership is a stewardship. So the prophet Nathan, he, he's the successor of Samuel, gets a word from God and, and, he, and God tells Nathan that, that you're going to make this covenant with David. I want you to let David know of this covenant I'm going to make with him. And so in 2 Samuel 7, this is where it all gets put together. All these years that David has had to struggle comes together in this, this passage of Scripture here. In verse 8 it says, Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be my... Be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, so that may, they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel." And I'll give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, you can underline this passage, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. That from you, there's going to be this great nation I'm going to make. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Who do you think he's talking about here? Jesus. Right? So God's covenant here is, is to build a house of God from David's lineage. So from David's family comes Jesus. We just read about the covenant that, that David made with his people, that he would be a ruler submitting himself to the people. Now with David, God has made a covenant with him that his kingdom will come from his family. So this is really cool. Let's go a thousand, let's jump a thousand years ahead, right? So it's John 13, chapter one says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus knew that he would be taken. So this is this new covenant that God has made with the people, with us, saying that because of the sacrifice of Jesus, he's going to be the savior of the world. In John 13, 3, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given 
all things into his hands that he had come from God and was going back to God. Jesus had all things under his authority given to him by God the Father. He could have done whatever he wanted to do. He was about to go and, and be subjected to probably the most painful, horrific suffering anyone's ever had to endure, uh, which is on the cross. He could have made it stop, but he didn't because there's this covenant that had to happen. And so he allowed it to happen. So here's the son of God. It's interesting when you go in Mark chapter 10, they call him the son of David. So with all authority in his hands, what does he do with it? Let's jump into verse four. This is pretty amazing. Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taken a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel wrapped around him. Here's the Son of God humbling himself as a servant, washing the feet of his disciples, pretty much his followers. Someone who had all authority in heaven and on earth. He could have not been killed. He could have made that stop. But what does he do? He allows that to happen. Not only that, he humbles himself before his disciples. And Peter even said, what the heck are you doing, Jesus? No way should you ever wash my feet. But Jesus responds to him calmly and he says, you don't know what's going on now, but you soon will. It's a hint that, hey, I am the Savior and I'm going to be confirming that. Jesus made himself an example to his men. He tells them that as I washed your feet, so should you wash your others. There's a bigger picture here that's much greater than Jesus himself, and it has to do with this covenant that God has made to the world, that there's this Messiah, that there's this Savior, that there won't, if you give your life to him and believe in him that he is the Savior, that you shall live in heaven and have eternal life. That was a covenant that God made through Jesus. It's a pretty familiar story here because it's a similar lesson that, that David made to his men. You know, you're not going to touch the anointed, right? So he became the example saying, we're not going to go against what God's plan is. Same thing here. Jesus says, we're not going to go against what God has planned in this new covenant, the sacrifice I have to go make. So how do you measure Maturity. How do you measure maturity in the form of leadership? And how do you measure spiritual maturity? The greatest indicator of our spiritual maturity is how we handle authority, power, and influence. You don't have to be the king of Israel. You don't have to be a program manager. You don't have to be a CEO of a big corporation to have authority, power, and influence. You could be a parent. You could be a father a mother, you have authority. Your children look up to you. Maybe you're an older sibling. You have authority and influence. You could be a night supervisor. Now you could be an elder, a pastor, or a life group leader. It's whatever position where people view you as a leader. That you have this authority, this, this power, and this influence. And the way you lead is a reflection of your maturity and if that maturity reflects what God has done in your life and who he has created you to be. So the question is, would you be like a Saul? 
or will you be more like David? Pastor Andy Stanley, who, he had a message similar to this, and and this really inspired me to share this with you because of just the, the leadership aspect of a king like David, who through his family, Jesus came. And he says this, when you're the most powerful person in the room, leverage your power for the benefit of the other people in the room. That's realized in Mark chapter 10, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is what Jesus did. This is his example for us, where he was God and became man and became servant. With what you know about David, God, Jesus, how will you handle your authority, power, and your influence? Imagine if all of us with influence lived the example that, that Jesus made and set before us, right? The, the example that David had before his men. What if we all did that? So where do we go from here? Here's some, here's some things to think about through this week. Let's, what situation are you in where you can leverage your power, authority, and influence? How can you leverage that at home? And how can you leverage that at work this week? Do you have a neighbor in a difficult place who might need you to step in? You know, there's an opportunity there to go wash their feet, so to speak. I think the challenge for us here is just to pay attention. Let's pay attention this week because God is up to something that's much bigger than us. And he wants us to be a part of it. The thing we have to remember is that whatever God has planned, it'll be in his time, right, and in his way. So let's, let's follow God this morning and just follow the example that he's provided to us in his word as, uh, as we go from here this morning. Let's pray together.